Well, good morning, church. Let's turn together to the letter of 3 John. The letter of 3 John. We're going to have a little conversation today, recapping some stuff, opening up our hearts and minds to the truth of God's Word. Over the last three weeks, I've spent a significant amount of time unpacking some of the implications of 2 John verse 9. And while I think I have covered enough, there's always more that could be said. There's always more that could be said because there's always opportunity in our day to discriminate. And when we think of discriminate, it's usually something that is pejorative in nature when we hear it. That means it has a negative connotation, it's used in a negative way. But the word discriminate in its root, uh, we use in Christendom in the word discern. The word discern and discriminate are equivocal. But one has a positive spiritual aspect and one has a negative bigoted aspect. But in reality, when we hear information, we should always discriminate that information. We do it automatically, right? So if I were to say, if I were to just give a list of foods, things that you might eat, and I were to say macaroni and cheese, depending on what recipe you're thinking of or the last time you ate it maybe it would be a restaurant or your mother's or your wife's or your husband's or your uncle's or your grandmother's or that nasty stuff you got at the truck stop on the way to texas either way when i say macaroni and cheese some of us go yeah i like that that's discrimination that's discernment some of us will say that's nasty because some of us just don't like that if i would say fried chicken not a big chicken fan not a big fried chicken fan guys believe it or not I will always prefer the grilled over the fried, unless it's fingers, and then the breading has to be a certain consistency. I'm too bougie with my chicken. What about music? Well, I love jazz, but what kind of jazz? Do you like the old school jazz? You like, do you like, I mean, I mean, really old school, like the 1920s, 1930s? You like the big band Benny Goodman? Do you like Michael Brecker, you know, mid-early 90s? Do you like fusion? How about country music? See, when I hear the word country and music, that's a, that's a dichotomy. There's something that's wrong with that. Music is always, in my mind, uh, artistic and expressive and country next to that doesn't work. It just seems so wrong. But that's just my discrimination. I say all these things because, beloved, we need to think as quickly in that which we hear doctrinally as we do when we hear about music that we like or don't like or food that we like or we don't like. We do the same thing with people, right? And when we discriminate and discern in the context of people, depending on our attitude and the outcome would depend on whether it is a good type of discrimination or a bad type of discrimination. And how we treat people in our discernment and our discrimination is either good or evil. And that's really where 3 John comes into play. Because John has left his second letter very clearly. The first letter written to a region of churches. The second letter written to a specific congregation. And the third letter written to a man named Gaius. Named Gaius. And this letter written to Gaius, (laughs) it's so funny how people do word searches and they say, well, I know who Gaius is. You don't know who Gaius is. He's not the Gaius in Corinth. He's not the Gaius in Rome. He's not the Gaius... There is no identification. There is no relationship to John with the people in Corinth. There is no way to know that name was as popular as the name Jesus, which millions held. 
You see what I'm saying? So you've got to say, which Jesus? Which Gaius? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The point is, it was written to a man named Gaius, and it was written about a specific, loving a specific brother called Demetrius. And it was written about the lack of love that a man named Diotrephes did not have. He did not have love. I know that was a double negative, so it made him sound like he did have love, but bear with me. I'm country. So when we look at this letter, we have to understand it in the context of First and Second John. We have to read the words and its instruction. There's something incredible about the fact that we can have this letter for thousands of years being preserved apostolically and then through the generations of church leadership and other congregations throughout antiquity, and yet it is probably just for most people, insignificant. I mean, I don't want to see your hands, but I mean, how many of you have just gone around the, 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 the bend of your Christian life and never read Third John? You've never read it. You never read Second John. You read First John, but you read it in pretext. You read the horrible passages or the encouraging passages. See, that's the problem. We read the Bible in passages. We're not reading the Bible. We're just fortune cookie purveyors. We're no different than the Gnostics. We're no different than the mystics. We're no different than, you know, any type of mysticism when we read Bible verses. And we go, see that the word of the Lord says. The word of the Lord doesn't say anything out of context, ever. So there's always a discriminating, discerning reality in our hearts and minds. We must, beloved, we must know the letter. And we must be familiar with the whole in order for the letters to make sense. I mean, just look at John's writing in and of itself. And this is sort of my thing. I have spent way too much time on John's writing to the neglect of everything else in the Bible for 20 years. But it's okay. It's okay. But I mean, think about all the nonsense and the knuckleheadedness that has come out of John's writing. Well, the Antichrist is coming in 2011. The Antichrist is coming in 1967. The Antichrist, there is no the Antichrist. The Bible doesn't teach about the Antichrist or the one, you know. It doesn't teach that. But yet in our communities of the Bible Belt especially, there are billions of dollars made in the peripheral writing about who this man and or being is going to be. John says... Anyone who does not abide in the doctrine of Christ but goes beyond the bounds of the revelation of the written word of God is the Antichrist. What does that mean? Not Christ. Against Christ. Antichrist means that that teaching, that person, that idea, that perception, that message is against the Christ. That's what it means. But it's so exciting to think Hollywood-esque in our understanding and interpretation of Scripture. It's so exciting to get to the point where, oh, yeah, let's look at the newspaper and see what's happening in the Bible. Well, then who do you listen to? Do you listen to Canada News? Sometimes I just put XM Radio on when I'm driving and listen to French. It keeps my, it keeps my ears up. You know, I might not can speak it very well anymore, but it keeps my ears up. I knew that word, <laughs> you know. I understood that. Sometimes I listen to um, NPR. Like, what are you talking about? You know? Sometimes I listen to 
uh, the, uh, the British place, the BBC, love to hear that news because they always sound authoritative. There's something about a British accent that sounds authoritative, you know, like the old Doug Weathers or Dan Rather, CBS News. I mean, you know, they always, well, what they're saying is true. How do you discern fake news? Not by the accent, <laughs> you know. Or do you listen to Fox or CNN or MSNBC or anything? Beloved, you have to discern. And we listen to a whole lot of stuff and we listen to a whole lot of things and, and we can get our news and you can't get the revelation of God through the news. You can't get the revelation of God through James Tippins and his commentary. You can't get the revelation of God by any ideology or culture or history or historical writing or, 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 or famous pastor, famous theologian, famous teacher. You can only get the truth of Christ and the revelation of God through his written word. And only then by the Spirit of God can you be made aware of its truth. How do you know you've been made aware of the truth of what's written in the Bible? Because you rest confidently in Christ. And I'm going to say that over and over again. Saving faith, which I think is a, <laughs> is a misnomer in a lot of ways historically, is truly understood as resting assurance and confidence in the promises of God by His Spirit. That against everything you hear, against everything that's been taught to you, against everything that you could come up with in all of our philosophical minds, because we're smart, against everything that history has ever said, you rest in the promises of God according to His Word in Christ Jesus. And resting is nearly like death. What can a dead man do to save himself? Not a thing. What can a saved man do to hold that salvation? Not a thing. And who is it that keeps us and holds us fast? It is Christ our King alone. He has purchased us, and he's, not a, he's a hoarder. He's not about to let somebody come in and take us off. He's not about to let somebody come in and clean us out. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Nobody's getting away from the kingdom of heaven. We're stacked up like newspapers, baby. We're stacked up. And that causes me stress to think about. So, so when we have all of these ideas now, all of this philosophy, all of this thinking, we come to the teaching here, and the last three weeks I've spent a lot of time dealing with you know, some examples, some further explanation about what is a different Christ. Beloved, let me make it very clear for those of you who may have not been here or forgotten. If this a over here is Christ and everything revealed to us about Christ in Scripture. And this over here is not related to this revelation. Then these two things are not equal. And we're not talking theoretical. We're talking absolutes. So to add to Christ is not Christ, is Antichrist. To take away from Christ is Antichrist. To have something different in the essence of who he is or what he accomplished or for whom is Antichrist. Sometimes we get caught up in the doctrinal labels. Sometimes we get too caught up in the, in the, uh, you know, the, the conversation or the academics. And we're not all speaking the same language because we're not all in the same place. And so to wash all that away and to know who are our brothers and sisters in the Lord, we have to get to the root of this. What is good news concerning God's word? What does God say his news, which is good, is? And my grammaticians are going, that was a very bad sentence. <laughs> what is it? 
And when someone begins to elaborate on the good news and they, they hit an element here and they hit an element here, it's like a perfect puzzle piece. In middle school, my mother, I love puzzles. I haven't put a puzzle together probably in 20 years, but I used to love to put them together. And I love Oreo cookies, so she bought me this huge stack of Oreo cookies, and it was all black over here and a little string of white right here and a glass of milk behind it. And I love that puzzle. But somewhere in the scope of finishing that puzzle, um, one of my brothers like ate a piece. Ate a piece. And so I could not see the glorious darkness of Oreo. I saw the hole, you know. Like last week's illustration about my theology of roaches. We don't come to the table and say, well, they're all, we got all these parts, but we're missing this. And I'm not talking about doctrine, doctrinal perfectionism. That is such a stupid, stupid, stupid thing to charge your brothers and sisters with when they're wanting to glorify God in His revelation. That is so immature. That is like when I put the puzzle together, I was 11 or however old you are when you're in fifth grade. We don't, we don't do that. Doctrinal perfectionism is a thing, but that's not what it means when you're saying, this is the revelation of God in Christ. This is what the Bible says about who Christ is. And when others come and say, no, this is... So when we ask what the gospel is, and they get a lot of stuff right, but they're missing essential pieces. And I said, then we get to this, don't we? What is essential doctrine? What is non-essential doctrine? Blah, 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 blah. I don't know. What in the Bible is not important? Because that's what it means to be non-essential. And what in the practice thereof is not important? Do we have liberty to practice certain things? Absolutely. But can these things become idols? Absolutely. Can a born-again believer be an idolater? Yes, sirree. You want to take a poll? <laughs> Raise your hand if you love this. Raise your hand if you love that. Someone says do this. Everybody stand up. We're all heretics. I mean, you know, that's how it's going to work. But when it comes to Christ, beloved, there's a... There's an epidemic of ignorance in our world. And the ignorance is the foundational platform and authority through which most fools speak. Our beloved, when we're not ignorant, we're less likely to speak up so boldly. We're more likely to teach rather than beat. We're more likely to approach rather than just blindside. We're most likely to pray rather than to just become the sword bearer. So when we read 3 John, what, what, what lens are we reading it through? Do we know the Christ? Do we understand that evangelizing the lost, that 80% of the lost in our circles claim to be the saved? And I'm using that term very broadly and culturally we are saved by the work of Christ not our functioning relationship therein because of how we approach it but in what God has done to absolutely save his people but how do we count one a brother or sister in Christ when they know the gospel saying well I believe Jesus died for my sins is not a confession of hope Every cult in America believes that. Every cult in America believes that. Every cult. 
Every non-church person in this county believes that. Every denomination believes that. Every historical moniker believes that. Matter of fact, I have a large section of friends in the Islamic community who believe that. But they're still working to appease Allah. Elohim, God. And when we stomp our feet against that, beloved, there is great room for discrimination because it is a sign of either pride, unwillingness to be honest, or unconversion, unregeneration. We do not worship that which man has created. We worship, listen to Romans 1, we worship and thank God for his sovereign grace. And sovereign grace is the gospel. Free grace is the gospel. Calvinism may contain the gospel. What's that got to do with anything? Calvin is not Jesus. What's it got to do with anything? You see the difference? Calvinism, the gospel. Mm. The gospel is Jesus Christ and all that he has revealed according to his, his word. When you hold, even if you're right, when you hold to the labels of history, you are treating God's gospel as an idol of man. Stop it. There is not going to be anything that I wrote, and I am more authoritative this day than John Calvin will ever be. And I'm more authoritative this day than any other pastor who has ever lived. Why? Because I'm standing here with the Word of God, and the Word of God is going to speak. You see the difference? I'm tired, beloved. I'm older today <laughs> by dates. And I don't have time to play. I don't have time to play. I don't have time to play. And when we play in the, in, 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 the, in the realm of all of these great thoughts, we are ignoring the greatest revelation of all. You do not need me to make you see what's true. And when I'm dead, I have made arrangements that everything I've ever preached and everything I've, that I've ever written is going to be burned away from the online stratosphere. It is going to be gone. I have made those arrangements. It will be done. Because it doesn't matter. What matters is that we are together in the teaching of God's word. Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself before all others, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want and puts them out of the church. Stops those who wants to, who want to welcome them and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. You see how that pretext has been abused so many times. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the, greet the friends, each by name. Now, there is so much here. I, I made a joke that I'd make this into eight weeks, and then Trey made a joke. It could be 15 weeks, and then I'm looking at it, and I don't know how long it's going to take to preach this text. Because there's some good, deep, rich, loving instruction here. A couple of weeks. <laughs> Y'all going, oh my goodness. <laughs> it's okay. Because when we get out of here, we're going into the letters to Timothy. So it's just going to be more instruction, more instruction, more instruction. Here we see that John, as he opens up the text, as he opens up this letter written to this brother Gaius, this beloved Gaius, whom he loves in the truth. This isn't the first time we've seen this. We've seen this taught in 1 John. We've seen this taught by Jesus in John's gospel. We've seen this expressed in 2 John as well. And now we see the same type of introduction and these adjectives applied to the people here in 3 John, to the person here in 3 John. John refers to himself as the elder. He has personally, in his heart, taken the burden of caring for this congregation and most importantly, caring for Gaius, who is part of a congregation. He is caring for the church where Diotrephes is an elder who is not doing the will of the Lord. And you'll notice in this text as we go through it, there is not one doctrinal error being dealt with here. But the only error is the living out the gospel in mutual affection and serving one another as Christ. That's the problem. And see, when we go to 2 John, we go to 1 John, I mean, how much time do the apostles spend? I'm going to ask this question, and and maybe some of you who are math-minded, you could go in and get the exact percentage, but I'm going to ask you, how much time do you see long extensions of these letters written for the sake of exposing false teaching or dealing with error or, 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 or things of that nature? How much time is spent? None, hardly at all. It's a line or a sentence or a name, and that's the end of it. Then the correction comes with the positive doctrinal teaching continually and continually and continually over and above all the error. Why? Because that is the only way God will ever show the truth to any human being. It is the only way, I'm going to say that again. It is the only way God will ever show the truth to any human being. Because our minds cannot process negative instruction. Now, I know I got a little psychology and philosophy last week. I have to say this. Don't think of these flowers. Don't look at this microphone. Don't say your middle name in your mind. You can't do it. 
You cannot obey negative instruction in thought. You cannot adhere to it. It is impossible. The only way it would happen is if you were deaf and you couldn't read lips. It's the only way. Don't look over there. Don't look over here. Don't look over there. You remember the old song, The Street? Don't look at them. But it was too late. I mean, you know. Totally inappropriate. So John, as Paul does, as James does, as we'll see on midweek in a couple of weeks, John is caring for this church. How is he caring for this church? Through oversight. What's that oversight include? Through doctrine, teaching, correction, rebuke. And we'll get to that in Timothy. We'll get that to, the, to the Paul's letters to Timothy. Matter of fact, that's a phrase that Paul uses, isn't it, in 2 Timothy? The training of righteousness. But see, sometimes we look at the elders of the church and we think, well, they're not doing their job. They're not warning enough people. Well, I'm warning you now, you're spending too much time in the negatives. If you're scared to death of false teaching, you've not yet rested in the absolute sovereignty of Christ. If you're scared of false teachers, you're not resting in the sovereignty of Christ. Because unbeknownst to me, and I'm not the expert, I've only been reading the Bible maybe 45, not 44 years. Because I could read it three. I've only been reading the Bible 44 years. I don't know how long for under, with understanding, but in studying, I mean, what does that make me? An expert? No, it makes me a guy that reads. I've been reading cookbooks too, but I can't fry an egg. And then in all my reading, I see this revelation. I see this truth. And all my studying from week to week to week to week for your sake, not for my sake, for your sake. I see that the call of the elder is to instruct and to teach. And that walking and abiding the truth is two-sided. We've seen this already. We've got months in 1 John that we've done this. We have the recapitulation for seven weeks in 2 John. And now we're going to have a couple of more weeks in 3 John. Here are the two things that, call, that, 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 that are called abiding. In the truth without exception of the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Savior of His people by the sovereign and free grace of God. Simply put. And then walking in a manner together with sacrifice without any obligation of another to me or to you in absolute divine affection. What does that mean? If you love somebody, there is nothing you can ask of them. If you love somebody, there's nothing that you can expect from them. Nothing. If you love somebody, there's nothing that you can command of them, demand of them, make them do, hold them accountable to. Love, by definition, in the revelation of God, is that God said, there is nothing I expect of you, but I will save you. I will lay my life down for you. Why is the false gospel so popular? Because God the Father has willed it to deceive the nations. And it's not the cults that we know of 
that are those who are greatly deceived. It, it is the churches, predominantly in the context of Protestantism, that are deceived. With a continued emphasis on how the creature can prove, provide, and empower themselves to live in salvation rather than sacrificial love for one another because of salvation. We all want to be mighty in the kingdom of God. The only mighty way is to be last. He who was God became nothing. Though he was God, he became nothing. Obedient to death on a cross as a criminal. The creator of the universe took on flesh, created a woman named Mary and a womb in her body and a body for himself in her womb. And the creator of the world came into the world as a creation that he created for himself, having never ceased to be God. Having never ceased to be God the Son and grew up in stature before God and men and learned to speak and learned to talk and learned to walk and learned to wipe his backside. And then he laid his life down for his mortal enemies, his beloved, his elect, his children. To pull them out of the world which was righteously condemned before the foundation. We're not to make God into the gods of Greek and Roman mythology. And this elder John has given his life for the sake of the joy of the saints. And all authority has been given to Christ and all authority has been given to the apostles. And now that same authority is not channeled through the elders. It's just taught by the elders. The elders are not the authority. God's word is the authority. See, Hence my continued humorous Stick that if a cat meows the word of God, we are subject to listen and obey it. Why? Because it holds authority over us. And John writes this letter to his beloved brother Gaius, whom he loves in the truth. He loves in the truth of Christ. How do you love each other in the truth of Christ? You know the truth of Christ. You know the truth of Christ. Gospel presentations have been demonically inspired since the beginning of days. Since Adam. Well, Tippins, you just... I mean, read Genesis 1. All is good. Read Genesis 2. Yippee, still good. Man and wife. Hallelujah. Read Genesis 3. The enemy, the liar, the deceiver. Satan, the devil, the adversary. He comes in and he changes things. He lies about the kingdom. He lies by taking away the truth and giving partial truths. Do you understand that? The lie is a partial truth. It's not a deception in that sometimes it is. But most, uh, moreover, it's not just a deception of saying, I'm going to say something that's just absolutely wrong and you're going to believe it. That happens. 
But in our circles, in our community, with our friends, with our family, with our co-workers, with our loved ones, with our neighbors, it is the truth in part, and it is not the truth. You know what good news is? If you eat of that fruit, you'll be like God. You know what the good news is? If you walk down this aisle, you'll be like God. You know what the good news is? If you say this prayer, you'll be like God. You know what the good news is? If you just live a good life, you'll know that you're like God. You know what the good news is? God's going to work in you to make you so good that you're going to look so much like Jesus that He's going to just take you right on in. Uh, Is that my son or is that my son? I don't know. Y'all come in. I mean, is God a hillbilly idiot? No. God is the Almighty who has saved His people. God has saved His people. He has saved His people. And the beloved love each other in the truth. They know the knowledge of Christ. They know Him. And they know that the only, only hope they have is that Christ is their righteousness. I don't know who they were, but there was a couple that said to me yesterday after this beautiful wedding ceremony that we had, so I have this wide aisle. We're not doing an altar call this morning. They said to me, in 52 years of going to church, I've never heard a wedding like that. I've never heard that taught in relation that marriage was a relationship to the gospel. They heard a lot of good things about marriage, yeah. True things, absolutely. But it's not the full truth. And not the full truth is a lie. And beloved, the the world in which we live is sunk and anchored in false teaching so much that we don't have the discernment and the discrimination to see it. And the elders of the church are charged before God who will stand. I don't know what this looks like. And it causes me fear. It causes me fear. But the fear is connected to the hope that there is no condemnation for me. So I don't know what this, I don't know what this account's going to be. I don't know if it's like God saying, well, I'm not going to tell you, but you better hold fast, you better watch out. You know, we'll get to that when we get into letters to Timothy because there's a lot of instructions to me and the elder brothers of this church there that apply to us that you also must know. But we're going to give an account to God for how we teach you and how we hold you to the walking in the truth as well. Not just in the doctrines of Christ, but abiding in the love of Christ as we live to love each other. You see the difference. It's both. It's not one or the other. And there are two primary things that take place in the context of the New Testament church where we see church discipline resulting in excommunication. We see excommunication happening swiftly Unless the resolve to false teaching that's being taught is stopped. Oh, wow, you bring false teaching in? You know, you're a fellow member of our family, and we're going to correct you. And if you don't stop, we get rid of you quickly. Let me say, church, we can't have this person among us right now because they won't stop teaching this nonsense. That's one. But the predominant thing that excommunicates the body of Christ in the first century is when they don't love each other. Even the ones who hold fast to the gospel of free and sovereign grace. 
The ones who say, yep, I know the Christ. This is the gospel. You go, absolutely. Then why are you living in a manner that hurts the body? Why are you doing these sins? Why are you destroying this family? You can be a gospel truth holder all day long, but if you are destroying through your attitude, your actions, even if they're well-intended, the fabric of our unity, that's also an excommunicable offense. Why? Because that also, just like the marriage, displays the perfection of Christ. It displays the covenant of God. It displays, you know, that the relationship in our marriages, of course, our first priority, but the reason that they are is so that the body of Christ may be built up into maturity. The home life is rehearsal for church life, which is rehearsal for eternity. To put it silly. And all of it's temporal. But these relationships right here. The way in which we relate to one another is temporal. But our eternal relationship as brothers and sisters in the truth is forever. So we need to love each other as if we're already standing in the presence of Christ with nothing else to do. And it's always service. You see how hard that is? Thank God He's not going to judge us by that. Thank God we're not required to establish perfect love in a sense that we're going to have rewards and removals in glory. The greatest reward of heaven is resting in a perfect way in the perfection of Jesus Christ. That our love and our adoration, you know what a reward is in a real psychological sense? Something you really, really wanted and you got it. Have you ever shown up to a restaurant? Congratulations, you're our thousandth customer. Here's a free soda. Thanks for the dollar. Here's a lifetime supply of, depending on where you are, it could be very exciting. Taco Bell, not really exciting. I guess I could sell that. Hey, tacos. What if it was like a really five-star steakhouse? But we'd be fat and happy. We'd be eating all over the place. What if it's a new house or what if it's a new car? I mean, that, what was the process right until they go pay their taxes on that thing? I don't know. A reward in glory is equivocal to the joy that you have in Christ. That which you long for. Christ, I long for Christ. Everybody says, I long for Christ. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Elders want the church to long for Christ. Well, beloved, if you long for Christ without longing for one another, you're not longing for Christ. Correctly. You see. That's a trip, isn't it? It's a trip. Well, how are we supposed to get there? We rest in the perfection of Jesus. We know the gospel. We hold fast. And that as we grow and are instructed in these ways, we are to what? We are to learn to grow in the knowledge of grace which includes how we live together as a body. That's why it's very odd to me how people, well, I'm just going to go to another church. I'm just going to go to another wife. I'm just going to go to another house, just knock on the door and say, hey, buddy, what's your name? Hey, John, get out of here. I'm going to come in and be the husband around here. <laughs> They're going to call 911 and take me to Milledgeville. That's where the mental hospital is. 
It doesn't work like that. But yet we treat the church relationship like that. And churches treat the relationship like that. That's how it's so easy to end up intimately involved with a group of people without even knowing what they believe and stand for. Without even knowing the implications and the discernments and the discriminations that these things... That's why you cannot take face value commentary. You must get into the word together and grow into the understanding of what, these, what each other means when they say the same words. But John's desire is to love the church and that the church would love one another. That's the desire of Christ in John where we are to love one another. We are to be found in Christ who gave himself for us. And that, li- that living out, this is my commandment. If you love me, Jesus says in John 15, you will obey my commandments. See, an antichrist explanation of that is, well, you're going to follow the Ten Commandments. That's not what Jesus is saying. He explains it very clearly. And if you want to know a further explanation, you can go back and find whatever week that is in John 15, and you can listen to it. But Jesus directly says in verse 12, And this is my commandment, that you lay your life down for one another as I have laid my life down for you. Now there's a paraphrase, isn't it? Infusing the very meaning that Jesus had without having to preach it. Love one another as I have loved you. Where do you get all that? He's already said, I lay my life down for the sheep. That is my love for them. So in the same way, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church who gave himself up for her that he might present her, what? Blameless and spotless without blemish, having washed her and provided for her and sanctified her and cleansed her and purified her and made her holy because he set himself apart as a substitute in her place. That his Purity and His holiness and His righteousness would be in their place. And that their wickedness, that their what sinfulness, that their guilt would be put on Himself. Love one another in that way. And beloved, sometimes we don't like to think about it, but we hear the term tough love. You know, I don't know who all is popular now with the talk shows or anything anymore. But there used to be this lady named Dr. Laura Schlesinger, and she's always talking about tough love. Tough love. He's the rudest person I've ever heard on the airwaves, supposedly being helpful, you know. Well, this is how I feel. Well, you're just dumb. Don't call me again. Click. I mean, you know. (laughs) Okay, then. But tough love in the context of the local church sometimes is doing that which is right in a manner which is pleasing and kind that feels very hard for the person receiving it. feels very hard for the person receiving it. The elders have to constantly balance. I don't know how, can we, can we just stomp our feet? You know, I've been charged of being too soft because I'm really a hard-nosed person. I am a hard person. And so I work diligently to pray that God would keep my heart soft. And He does by His mercy. But if He ever stopped... I'll break this pulpit in half. And everybody be scared. 
And the only ones that will be back next week are the ones that are too scared not to come back. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's so easy to manipulate people. That's not hard love. Hard love sometimes sounds like this. That's not pleasing to the Lord. It's going to cost you your joy. It's going to cost you your intimacy. It's going to cost you greatly when you act foolish. That's not true about the Lord. You're going to be disciplined. You're going to be corrected. You're going to, you're going to have to stand before the church because what you're saying is antichrist. Stop it. What you're confessing is not the gospel. <laughs> Why, is that? Why is that hateful? What you're reading is a lie. What you're eating is poisonous. Well, I don't want to offend anybody. That woman was drinking strychnine. It's none of my business. If she wants to die, let her die happy. She's not going to die happy. Poison is not a good death. It's painful. Beloved, we speak the truth in love. And speaking the truth in love is God's prescription for keeping the church in front of the gospel. For keeping the church in front of the love of Christ as we, I'm going to say this word and it may not be right, as we mimic the love of Christ. We're not going to perfect it. We're not going to, we're not going to say, look at there, I'm just like Jesus. No, we are acting as Jesus acted. We are living as Jesus lived. But it doesn't count for righteousness because it's impure even in its best day. Our greatest love is still perfectly subject to justice. That is why righteousness must be given to our account because it is not given to our flesh. <laughs> it is not given to our flesh. And that is why it is all of grace. It is all just about the kindness and love and mercy of God for His people where He causes us to see and rest in His absolute perfect redemption through Jesus Christ. And John is overly and tenderly concerned about this church. Why? Because the leader, one of the leaders of the church is not loving one of the brothers in the faith who's an evangelist. Because he took verse 9 as the primary point of 2 John. Say, <laughs> I'm just saying that as a, that's, you know, that's conjecture. But I'm saying, think about that. He took verse 9, Diotrephes, and he began to just line everybody up. Next, and next, and He began to discriminate outside the bounds of what Scripture teaches. He began to dig, dig below the gospel and see just if there ever was anything peculiar or funny or odd. Those things will come out, beloved. We don't have to dig for them. They will come out. And what people believe about the gospel will come out in what they understand about the love of Christ and the call to love one another as well. So if we say, this is the gospel, this is the love of God for His people, and I find myself in that love, and then I say, well, then what does that mean for this for you? See, that's called a distinction. And they go, man, I don't have to listen to that. Paul says, I mean, John says, he likes to put himself first and doesn't acknowledge our authority. What was going on with, the, with, with this guy? He was right. He was the authority. He's the pastor around here, by golly. You see? And I did that on purpose earlier. You know, I'm the greatest authority standing here right now. Why? Because God has tasked me with teaching the authoritative word. It's not me, it's the Word. And I've said that a thousand times if I've said it once. So I want you to hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. 
But Diotrephes is like, I'm the pastor around here. doesn't matter what Paul says. don't matter what John says. don't matter what these guys say. I'm the elder of this church. And I don't want this knucklehead in here. I don't like him. I don't like this guy, this Demetrius, this evangelist traveling around. I know what traveling and evangelists are all about. They're just looking for money. You see, he's discriminating wrongly against this man. Don't give the man who brings another Christ or an incomplete or a conditioned or an added to gospel. Don't give that person an attention. Don't give them attention. Don't give them reception. Don't let them have a place of stature in the church. Don't let them teach. That's why in order for the church to be subject to someone who teaches, they must go through years of trial. Years of trial. Not weeks, not months. It's not an application process. It's trial. How they deal with problems, how they deal with correction, how they deal with doctrine, how they deal with false doctrine, how they deal with the Word of God, how they handle the Word of God rightly. And all the intricacies. To be an elder is not about teaching. To be an elder is about overseeing and caring and loving and being confident in the gospel and, and dealing with the flesh. Of, his, of himself. Knowing that he's more of a fallen man than any man in here. And his ultimate care. Look at verse 2 here. His ultimate care. Is not worried about the doctrine. Because he's already taken care of that in, in instruction. Positive instruction took care of negative doctrine. You see that? Don't do this, but do this. Don't receive this, but receive these. So we're to put our mind on who we receive, not who we don't receive. And John said, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you. Now some translations say prosper. Prosper is a, is a bad term in our world because it's completely common. Yeah, it's completely, it connotates material wealth. And John is not praying for this man's material wealth. Okay? He's talking about as he is well in the faith, he prays that God may help him go well in life, in his relationships. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. As it goes well with your soul. See, that's where we get the Lord bless you. Christ bless. God bless. Everybody, you know, what's the blessings of God in that context? We know that it is all about Christ, but we also know that we are praying for one another for the blessings of God in health. But sometimes that blessing puts us in the hospital, doesn't it? Puts us under the surgical knife. Puts us in a mental state that we don't know if we can ever shake. So the only true and hopeful and absolute blessing is the gospel, is the work of Christ. And in further explanation, continuing, continuing there, verse 3 says, For I rejoiced greatly when the other brothers came and told me about the truth that is yours, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Now, John's not talking about his doctrine here. That's a given by the fact he called him beloved Gaius. Gaius hadn't straightened up his gospel and got it right finally. Gaius had the gospel right long before he was a leader in the church. 
Diotrephes had the gospel right long before he was a leader in the church. Now Diotrephes' life is antithetical to the gospel that he holds to, so Diotrephes is in trouble. Gaius is going to have to take up the mantle to receive the man of God who's preaching the truth. I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, we can't have one and the other. We must have both. There is no joy in the body of Christ if there is doctrinal error, no matter how loving we are. I want you to see this. There is no joy if we have doctrinal error, no matter how loving we are. See, that's the majority of the American church, isn't it? We're all loving to the way we could define it. We're doing a lot of stuff together. We're having a lot of fun together. When times of need come up, we're providing for those needs. We're doing a lot of stuff that, that, that helps each other. We're, we're kind. We're gentle. We don't talk about each other into their face, but only on the phone. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's positive, but the gospel's not there. It's not true. And when the gospel's there, but there's no care, and there's no love, and there's no intimacy, and there's no concern, in practical things, not just doctrinal things, in practical things, it's not true either. It's not a true church. It's not a true family. Let me like me having my wife and children and say, yeah, I love y'all, and I'm glad y'all are here, and I'll never throw you out of your house, but you're not leaving either. And I'm not going to give you food or toilet paper. I love you. I don't want anything to happen to you. I possess you. And you're on the property, but I don't care. I mean, as long as you're here and alive, here's a little bit of water. I mean, see how weird? That's psycho. That's like a, a bad B-movie of some kind. No, the church can't be like that. We grow in our concern for one another. And our concern for each other is directly related to the gospel that we know because God's concern for His... And I know some of you don't like that word, but I'm going to use it in relationship to this conversation. God's concern for His people sent His Son to satisfy His wrath for them, you see. But it was a pure and absolute decree. It wasn't a, well, I guess I'll fix it. God didn't fix anything. He declared it all. It was absolutely perfect. Everything that God has done has come to pass, and everything that comes to pass is absolutely that which God has decreed nothing different so this is the this is the beauty i want no other joy in my life in the context of my ministry and my marriage and my hope for you as our church family than to know that you have love for one another which is walking in the truth of christ i want you to have love for one another Put away our petty difference. You know, you hear all you hear all the teaching of Paul. Put away pettiness. Put away malice. Put away discontent. Put away jealousy. Put away wrath. Put away anger. Why? Because God's wrath's coming upon those things and those people who are identified by that. You are have no condemnation. God's wrath's not coming on you. So why are you acting and living and talking like the people who are going to get God's wrath? Don't do that. You see, you're not going to do that. You shouldn't do that. That's that's what he's saying. You're not going to receive God's wrath. You are the beloved. You are the children of God. He is going to teach you and correct you and discipline you. Not punish you. And that's why we're here today. 
so that we may know the joy of walking in the truth together, that there's an intimacy. And it has a lot to do with helping to grow each other in knowledge. And it has a lot to do with helping each other grow, helping to grow each other in service. It's both. Because otherwise, we could just be a complete internet church and be done. And I could sit at home in my leather chair with my feet up, robe and a bubble pipe. I don't smoke, but I could you know, get a bubble pipe if it made you feel better. Put me a fake fire in the background and we just have church chat. Church chat. Grace Truth Church chat. That sounds good. Some of you are in that group. I didn't realize how silly that sounded until I just said it. Hmm. But look at verse 5. We're going to pick up in some of this here, and then we're, then, we're going, then we're going to be done. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who told of your love before the congregation. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name of Christ accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, I'll make this comparison and then we're done. Fellow workers for the truth is intimacy with the body. When we're helping each other in any way, we're helping each other and we're supporting the truth. When we're helping and supporting and drawing attention to Antichrist things, we're supporting that truth. When we're allocating, this guy's my brother, this guy's my brother, but everybody is different in their Christ, we're supporting Antichrist. When we're giving money to ministries abroad that don't preach the gospel just because they have good benevolence, we're supporting Antichrist. There are a lot of secular organizations that help people that you could support that aren't preaching a false Christ. They're preaching no Christ at all. But for some reason, we get enamored with the, oh, it's about Jesus, then we're doing a little bit better. No, we're not. We're not doing anything better if we're taking aid to a nation and preaching them to a false gospel. It's not good. But beloved, before we ever reach out across the street, are we reaching in with each other? Are we praying for one another? Or do we have disdain in our heart? We cannot have disdain. Beloved, we can, we can fight, and I hate that word, but we can fight and talk and debate. And, and my goodness, I just, we, just, we didn't celebrate it yet, but we just had the date of our 25th anniversary. I think in 25 years, it feels like five. Just like poof. And I can't, you know, I have this cloud of weirdness. Like, man, we, you know, we've really never even really had many fights. The way I see it. But we've had 25 years of fights. 25 years of disagreements. 25 years of frustrations. 25 years of anger. 25 years of, of, of sinfulness. 25 years of, you know, I hate your guts. But not every day. Because we've also have had 25 years of intimacy. 25 years of children. 20, well, 23 years of children. 25 years of... Uh, you know, of reconciliation, 25 years of prayers, 25 years of hope, 25 years of, of sincerity, 25 years of encouragement. The body of Christ needs to be exactly like that. And the closer we get to the Lord, I, I saw this pop up this morning, it's so funny that 
was good timing. The closer we get to the Lord through the revelation of his word, the closer we will get to his people in intimacy. And the closer we get to his people in the trueness and the purity of the doctrines of Christ, the more opposed the world will be to us. The more opposed that those who not know Christ will be. They will hate us and they will malign us and they will talk about us and they will cause stress in our lives. And it is supposed to be that way, beloved. Because Jesus Christ did not come down here and wave his magic wand and just stand up there and go, Behold, I'm going to forgive all of your sins. No, he became a nothing and died on a cross and was subject to the wrath of God and to the judgment of men in guiltlessness. And then he was raised from the dead because he was guiltless. He was sinless. And that promise now of redemption is ours and it's proven because he lives today and he's going to glorify his people with him. And that's what the gospel is supposed to be in our hearts and minds as we live together, as we take the Lord's table to remember the death of Jesus Christ. So put that right there on the front of your hearts and minds today and intimately know that when we take this table in a moment, we are doing it as one body, not individuals. One people with eternal intimacy that can never be shaken, with eternal hope that can never fade with a blessing that comes from God greater than any good day on this earth could ever be. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the overwhelming vastness of your everlasting love for us. And I thank you, Lord, that we can take time out and just ponder this beautiful letter that you've written through your apostle John. Lord, help us to truly be sensitive to discern, to discriminate the information that comes from those around us concerning your son and the work that he provided and the work that he accomplished and the power in which he did it for your people. And Father, help us to be sensitive and discriminating and discerning in how our love approaches one another in subjectivity to this gospel. Remembering and thinking and and flowing through this good news, this beautiful love that you've given your people. And Father, help us to reflect on this truth as we pray, as we serve, as we live, as we work. Even we who work to the bone sometimes, Father, we are working as unto you. And so we thank you for your love for us and for this wonderful privilege to serve and to worship. And Father, we pray these things in the name of Christ our King. Amen.